Chapter twenty seven of seventeen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jonathan Burchard, August two thousand nine. Seventeen by Booth Tarkington. Chapter twenty seven. Marooned. At every possible opportunity, William hailed other girls with a hasty, Mav the next with you! But he was indeed unfortunate to have arrived so late. The best he got was a promise of the nineteenth, if there is any. After each dance, Miss Boat conducted him back to the maple tree, aloof from the general throng, and William found the intermissions almost equal to his martyrdoms upon the platform. But, as there was a barely perceptible balance in their favor, he collected some fragments of his broken spirit when Miss Boke would have borne him to the platform for the sixth time and he begged to sit this one out, alleging that he had kind of turned his ankle or something, he believed. The cordial girl at once placed him upon the chair and gallantly procured another for herself. In her solicitude she sat close to him, looking fondly at his face, while William, though now and then rubbing his ankle for plausibility's sake, gazed at the platform with an expression which Gustav Dor would gratefully have found suggestive. William was conscious of a voice continually in action near him, but not of what it said. Miss Boke was telling him of the dancing up at the lake, where she had spent the summer, and how much she had loved it. But William missed all that. Upon the many-colored platform the ineffable one drifted to and fro, back and forth, her little blonde head in a golden net, glinting here and there like a bit of tinsel blowing across a flower garden. And when that dance and its encore were over, she went to lean against a tree, while Wallace Banks fanned her. But she was so busy with Wallace that she did not notice William, though she passed near enough to waft a breath of violent scent to his wan nose. A fragment of her silver speech tinkled in his ear. Oh, Wally Banks, bid pidsent have brother Josie Joe's dance lest Joe say so. Lola must be fair. Wally mustn't. That's Miss Pratt, observed Miss Boke, following William's gaze with some interest. You met her yet? Yeah, said William. She's been visiting here all summer, Miss Boke informed him. I was at a little tea this afternoon, and some of the girls said this Miss Pratt said she'd never dream of getting engaged to any man that didn't have seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I don't know if it's true or not, but I expect so. Anyway, they heard her say so. William lifted his right hand from his ankle and passed it, time after time, across his damp forehead. He did not believe that Miss Pratt could have expressed herself in so mercenary a manner. But if she had, well, one fact in British history had so impressed him that he remembered it even after examination. William Pitt the Younger had been Prime Minister of England at twenty-one. If an Englishman could do a thing like that, Surely a bright, energetic young American needn't feel worried about $750,000. And although William, at seventeen, had seldom possessed more than 750 cents, four long years must pass, and much could be done, before he would reach the age at which William Pitt attained the premiership, coincidentally a good, ripe, marriageable age. Still, $750,000 is a stiffish order, even allowing four years to fill it and undoubtedly Miss Boke's bit of gossip added somewhat to the already sufficient anxieties of William's evening. Up at the lake, Miss Boke chattered on, we got to use the hotel dining room for the hops. It's a floor a good deal like this floor is tonight, just about oily enough and as nice a floor as I've ever danced on. We have awfully good times up at the lake. Of course, there aren't so many men up there. 
like there are here tonight, and I must say I am glad to get a chance to dance with a man again. I told you you'd dance all right once we got started, and look at the way it's turned out. Our steps just suit exactly. If I must say it, I could scarcely think of anybody I ever met I'd rather dance with. When anybody's step suits in with mine, that way, why, I love to dance straight through an evening with one person, the way we're doing. Dimly, yet with strong repulsion, William perceived that their interminable companionship had begun to affect Miss Boke with a liking for him. And as she chattered chummily on, revealing this increasing cordiality all the while, though her more obvious topics were dancing, dancing floors, and the lake, the reciprocal sentiment roused in his breast was that of Sinbad the sailor for the old man of the sea. He was unable to foresee a future apart from her, and when she informed him that she preferred his style of dancing to all other styles shown by the men at this party, her thus singling him out for praise only emphasized in his mind that point upon which he was the most embittered. Yes, he reflected, it had to be me. With all the crowd to choose from, Mrs. Parcher had to go and pick on him. All, all the others went about, free as air, flitting from girl to girl, girls that danced like girls. All, all except William, danced with Miss Pratt. What Miss Pratt had offered him was the choice between the thirty-second dance and the twenty-first extra. That was what he had to look forward to, the thirty-second regular or the twenty-first extra. Meanwhile, merely through eternity, he was sealed unto Miss Boke. The tie that bound them oppressed him as if it had been an ill-omened matrimony, and he sat beside her like an unwilling old husband. All the while, Miss Boke had no appreciation whatever of her companion's real condition, and, when little, spasmodic sinister changes appeared in his face, as they certainly did from time to time, she attributed them to pains in his ankle. However, William decided to discard his ankle, after they had sat out two dances on account of it. He decided that he preferred dancing, and said he guessed he must be better. So they danced again, and again. When the fourteenth dance came, about half an hour before midnight, they were still dancing together. It was upon the conclusion of this fourteenth dance that Mr. Parcher mentioned to his wife a change in his feelings toward William. "'I've been watching him,' said Mr. Parcher, "'and I never saw true misery show plainer. He's having a really horrible time. By George, I hate him, but I've begun to feel kind of sorry for him. Can't you trot up somebody else so he can get away from that fat girl? Miss Parcher shook her head in a discouraged way. I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, she said. Well, try again. I can't now. She waved her hand toward the rear of the house. Round the corner marched a short procession of negroes bearing trays, and the dancers were dispersing themselves to chairs upon the lawn for refreshments. Well, do something, Mr. Parcher urged. We don't want to find him in the cistern in the morning. Mrs. Parcher looked thoughtful, then brightened. I know, she said. I'll make May and Lola and their partners come sit in this little circle of chairs here, and then I'll go and bring Willie and Miss Boke to sit with them. I'll give Willie the seat at Lola's left. You keep the chairs. Straightway, she sped upon her kindly errand. It proved successful. So successful, indeed, that without the slightest effort, without even a hint on her part, she brought not only William and his constant friend to sit in the circle with Miss Pratt, Miss Parcher, and their escorts, but Mr. Bullitt, Mr. Watson, Mr. Banks, and three other young gentlemen as well. 
Nevertheless, Mrs. Parcher managed to carry out her plan, and after a little display of firmness, saw William satisfactorily established in the chair at Miss Pratt's left. At last, at last, he sat beside the fairy-like creature, and filled his lungs with infinitesimal particles of violet scent. More, he was no sooner seated than the little blonde head bent close to his, the golden net brushed his cheek. She whispered, "'Naughty Ickle Boy Batster, Lola's last night, and Ickle Boy Batster fluttin, flut all night with Dray Big Durl.' William made no reply. There are occasions, infrequent of course, when even a bachelor is not flattered by being accused of flirting. William's feeling toward Miss Boke had by this time come to such a pass that he regarded the charge of flirting with her as little less than an implication of grave mental deficiency. And well he remembered how Miss Pratt, beholding his subjugated gymnastics in the dance, had grown pink with laughter. But still the rose-leaf lips whispered, Lola saw. Lola saw bad boy Batster under Dray Bid Tree flat with, with Dray Bid Durrell, flattened all night with Dray Bid Normous Durrell. Her cruelty was all unwitting. She intended to rally him sweetly, but seventeen is deathly serious at such junctures, and William was in a sensitive condition. He made no reply in words. Instead, he drew himself up, from the waist, that is, because he was sitting, with a kind of proud dignity, and that was all. Utras, whispered Lola. He spake not. "'Twasn't my fault about dancing,' she said. "'Bad boy, what made you come so late?' He maintained his silence and the accompanying icy dignity, whereupon she made a charming little pout. "'Oo be so tross,' she said. Lola talked a nice man of her side of her. With that she turned her back upon him and prattled merrily to the gentleman of sixteen upon her right. Still and cold sat William. Let her talk to the man at the other side of her as she would, and never so gaily, William knew that she was conscious every instant of the reproachful presence upon her left. And somehow these moments of quiet and melancholy dignity became the most satisfactory he had known that evening. For as he sat, so silent, so austere, and not yet eating, though a plate of chicken and salad had been placed upon his lap, he began to feel that there was somewhere about him a mysterious superiority which set him apart from other people, and above them. This quality, indefinable and lofty, had carried him through troubles that very night which would have wrecked the lives of such simple fellows as Joe Bullitt and Johnny Watson, and although Miss Pratt continued to make merry with the man upon her right, it seemed to William that this was but outward show. He had a strange, subtle impression that the mysterious superiority which set him apart from others was becoming perceptible to her, that she was feeling it too. Alas, such are the moment fate seizes upon to play the clown. Over the chatter and laughter of the guests rose a too familiar voice. Let me help you to a nice tongue sandwich, lady? Nom? Nice green lettuce sandwich, lady? Genesis. Nice tongue sandwich, sir? "'Nice lettuce sandwich, lady?' he could be heard vociferating, perhaps a little too much as if he had sandwiches for sale. "'Let me just lay this nice green lettuce sandwich on your plate for you.' His widespread hand bore the tray of sandwiches high overhead, for his style in waiting was florid, though polished. He walked with a faint, shuffling suggestion of a prance, a lissom pomposity adopted in obedience to the art sense within him which bade him harmonize himself with occasions of state and fashion.' His manner was the super-supreme expression of graciousness, 
but the graciousness was innocent, being but an affectation and nothing inward, for inwardly Genesis was humble. He was only pretending to be the kind of waiter he would like to be. And because he was a new waiter, he strongly wished to show familiarity with his duties. Familiarity, in fact, with everything and everybody. This yearning, born of self-doubt and intensified by a slight touch of gin, was beyond question the inspiration of his painful behavior when he came near the circle of chairs where sat Mr. and Mrs. Parcher, Miss Parcher, Miss Pratt, Miss Boke, Mr. Watson, Mr. Bullet, others, and William. "'Nice tongue sandwich, lady,' he announced, semi-cake walking beneath his high-born tray. "'Nice green lettuce, Sam!' He came suddenly to a dramatic dead stop as he beheld William sitting before him, wearing that strange new dignity in Mr. Baxter's evening clothes. "'Name of goodness!' Genesis exclaimed, so loudly that everyone looked up. "'How in the living world you ever come to get here? "'Your daddy certainly must have weakened way down "'fore he let you wear his low-cut vest and pants and long-tail coat. "'I bet any man fifty cents you gone and stole him out "'after he done went to bed.' "'And he burst into a wild, free African laugh. "'At seventeen, such things are not embarrassing.' They are catastrophical, but mercifully, catastrophes often produce a numbness in the victims. More as in a trance than actually, William heard the outbreak of his young companions, and during the quarter of an hour subsequent to Genesis' performance, the oft-renewed explosions of their mirth made but a kind of horrid buzzing in his ears. Like sounds borne from far away were the gaspings of, of Mr. and Mrs. Parcher, striving with all their strength to obtain mastery of themselves once more. A flourish of music challenged the dancers. Couples appeared upon the platform. The dreadful supper was over. The ineffable one, supremely pink, rose from her seat at William's side and moved toward the platform with the glowing Joe Bullet. Then William, roused to action by this sight, sprang to his feet and took a step toward them. But it was only one weak step. A warm and ample hand placed itself firmly inside the crook of his elbow. "'Let's get started for this one before the floor gets all crowded up,' said Miss Spoke. Miss Spoke danced and danced with him. She danced him on and on and on. At half-past one, the orchestra played Home Sweet Home. As the last bars sounded, a group of earnest young men who had surrounded the lovely guest of honor, talking vehemently, broke into loud shouts, embraced one another, and capered variously over the lawn. Mr. Parcher beheld from a distance these manifestations, and then, with an astonishment even more profound, took note of the tragic William, who was running toward him, radiant, misspoke, hovering futilely in the far background. "'What's all the hullabaloo?' Mr. Parcher inquired. "'Miss Pratt!' gasped William. "'Miss Pratt!' "'Well, what about her?' And upon receiving William's reply, Mr. Parcher might well have discerned behind it the invisible hand of an ironic but recompensing providence making things even, taking from the one to give to the other. "'She's going to stay!' shouted the happy William. "'She's promised to stay another week!' And then, mingling with the sounds of rejoicing, there ascended to heaven the stricken cry of an elderly man plunging blindly into the house in search of his wife. End of chapter 27